Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Today's class is in honor of Nili's uh, mother, her yard site is tonight, Nili Herzog. Nili, you can come closer to the table if you want, to sit like a stranger. Ella Bat Yitzchak, and uh, her neshama, her soul, should be elevated, and uh, you should continue to give her tremendous nachas, and uh, she should be a good advocate for you, and your sister, and the whole entire family. And for all of us, thank you. We just... Uh, we just celebrated the holiday, Shavuot. God gave us the Torah. But then we spend all year receiving the Torah. It takes one day to give, but it takes a year, a whole year, entire year to receive it, to absorb it. And um, naturally, this is the first. We're on page 1010. So this is the first class after the giving of the Torah, so we... Uh, we approach everything that we learn with a renewed enthusiasm. And basically, this is the third part of the Tanya, and it's called the Letter of Teshuvah, Letter of Return. It's interesting, in Hebrew, the word Teshuvah is usually translated as repentance. But it's not really a good translation. The literal if you want to understand the word, you have to go to the root. You have to understand the root of the word. The root of the word, the meaning, the literal meaning of the word teshuvah means to return. Repentance and return are different, different concepts. Repentance means to be reborn again. To become something other. To become a new person. Return, however, means to return home. Come back to a place you never truly left. You know, it's like how far is east from west? <laughs> you just have to turn around. You just have to turn around. You have to face inward. Because deep down, deep down inside, we all know what's right. You know, the moments of truth, when that inner truth emerges, and we have that clarity. But unfortunately... The human condition is that we're not in touch with that truth. We get distracted. Like you ask most people, from 1 to 10, how important is health in your life? 10 being the most important. How, how important is health in your life? Depends if you have it or not. On the contrary. When you don't have it, then that's when you really appreciate it. It's, it's 11. It's the most important thing. The proof is in the pudding. If, God forbid, you lose your health or your health is threatened, there's nothing we won't do to regain our health. We'll bankrupt ourselves, we'll undergo painful procedures. So we know for a fact, the proof is in the pudding, that being healthy is the most important thing in our lives. Okay. So that, now that we've established it as a fact, this begs the question, and why is it that most people, most of the time, actively lead unhealthy lives? Makes no sense. 
it's inconsistent. Here I know for a fact that being healthy is your priority. It's the most important thing in your life. It's so powerful. They did a study, people who were struggling with addictions for years, for decades. The guy says to quit smoking is no problem. I've done it dozens of times. <laughs> and, and they couldn't without any success. And the moment they found out that they, had a, they were threatened with a terminal illness, overnight, the addiction was gone. For 20, 30 years, they couldn't break the habit. In one split second, gone. Melted away. What happened? What happened was, and now that their life was threatened, and suddenly they keenly felt the desire to be healthy is so powerful, the will to live is so powerful, that it's no contest. What's the, what's, the, what's the question here? A momentary pleasure versus the will and pleasure to live? It's like a rabbit versus an elephant. There's no, there's no contest. Suddenly they had clarity. So what does that mean? This will to live was there all the time. It's not something new. It, but it was dormant. It's buried. You're not, it's subconscious. Vaguely, in the back of your mind, you know that being healthy is something, something that's important. Please welcome. Please welcome. But on a daily basis, it's not a conscious force in your life. It's not a force that you feel. It's not palpable. So consciously, we desire. We have all these self-destructive desires. And the more clever a person is, the more you rationalize these self-destructive desires. We're on page 1010. But in moments of truth, the truth comes out in all its clarity. And suddenly it's crystal clear. Well, it's not even a question. I want to be healthy. What, I'm going to give up my health for what? For the cigarette or for this momentary pleasure? So that's the idea of teshuva. Teshuva means to return, to come home to a place you never really left. Because the same is true of our Jewishness. You know, you ask most Jews, um, to be Jewish is so important to me. I'm a Jew at heart. Um, and a moment of truth comes out. You know, before the Six-Day War, when they thought that they prepared, in Israel they prepared 50,000 graves. They went around consecrating parks. They went around consecrating them, preparing them for cemeteries. Because they thought, listen, they have to survive. But there's going to be so many casualties, God forbid. So before the Six-Day War, there was such an, uh, an awakening. The Jews who didn't step foot into shul, into synagogue, even on Yom Kippur, because they thought that being Jewish meant nothing to them. All of a sudden, the moment of truth, and they were expecting another Holocaust, the truth emerged in its full clarity. What do you mean? I'm a Jew, and, so, and it's the most important thing in my life. Even though I've pretended for the last 30 years, it means nothing to me. Now, crisis can't create something that's new. Crisis could only help emerge what's there. It's, it's there deep down. But it's, 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 fuddle, it's fuzzy and it's vague and it's nebulous and it's all befuddled and bemuddled. That's the human condition. It's called immaturity. We're not in touch with ourselves. We think we know ourselves, but we don't. We're clueless. You know, if some mad scientist blew up a hydrogen bomb tomorrow in the North Pole, according to the, to, to, to the climate theories, you don't need a mad scientist. <laughs> it's already happening. <laughs> Right. Let's say we knew we had 30, 30 days left to live. You know, people would discover themselves perhaps for the first time in their lives. Because everything that they thought from 1 to 10 is the most important thing to me, they would discover in that moment of truth, you have 30 days left to live. What I thought was number 10 
is barely number one. What I thought was number one, I had no time for. I had no time for my spouse. I had no time for, to have children. I had no time to marry. I had no time for my children. But I had time for my career. For my, you know, at the end of the day, no one hugs me at the shakes. I mean, who cares? At the end of the day, all that matters. What you really deeply care about. But the, so the question is, why do we need a moment of crisis to discover who we really are? What our real priorities are? And that's the gift of the Torah. Giving of the Torah is called Matan Torah. It's a gift. Matan means it's a Matan. Because the Torah is really like an x-ray. Imagine you're able to take a spiritual x-ray of a person. Beneath the surface. Who we are deep down. What we're really all about. The Torah. You don't need a crisis to discover what you're all about. God gave us a gift. It's almost like an x-ray, spiritual x-ray of who we really are. In other words, when the Torah tells a person to do something... But the Torah is really telling a person, deep down, this is who you are. This is your priority. This is what you want to do. It means so much to you. And when the Torah tells us something is prohibited, the Torah is not imposing upon us a lifestyle, a superficial lifestyle, externally imposing upon us. You know, some old man in heaven is thinking of rules and laws to make life interesting, complicated. No, the Torah is giving us an extra of who we really are, our core and our essence. This is who you really are. This is what you're really all about. And you don't need a crisis, you don't need a moment of truth to discover that. So that's the idea of teshuva. Teshuva literally means to return. To come back to a place you've never really loved. Because even when you were disconnected, deep down inside, you have a whole rich inner life. Subconsciously, they were completely oblivious. To. But it doesn't change the reality. Reality is that deep down, there's a whole life. And, and it emerges in the moment of teshuva, that moment that you turn from east to west, or from west to east, that you make that turnaround in your life. That split second. You're not repenting, you're returning. You're reconnecting. You're revealing that connection that was always there, that's unbreakable. Because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. I never heard anyone say a Christian is a Christian is a Christian. A Buddha is a Buddha is a Buddha. A Muslim is a Muslim. Because it's not true. There's no such thing as an atheistic Christian. Only a Jew. No matter how atheist or radical or disconnected or self-hating, which is also uniquely Jewish. When was the last time you met a self-hating Irishman? A self-hating Italian? Only Jews. You find self-hating Jews. It's so Jewish. You know, it's, it's, if it wasn't sad, it would be funny. Why? Because it's so alive. Why is it? Because, because it's so alive because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew you can't run away from it it's who you are it, it's so Jewish why does it make you sad though and want to run away from it it's sad because, because, because you know why really due to no fault of their own honestly speaking imagine Bach and Mozart growing up in a home without a piano that describes most Jews today they're Bach and Mozart, due to no fault of their own, grew up in a home without a piano, without a single positive Jewish experience, without a single positive and meaningful Jewish experience. You know, the bar mitzvah was more bar than mitzvah. You know, the whole thing was irrelevant. It was like learning Hebrew, it was like learning Chinese, you know, just to perform a performance, get your presence. You graduated, you exited, you said goodbye. The whole thing was so meaningless, irrelevant. You know, that's why you have so many Jubus. You know, Jews are running to, to, to spirituality. They're running to Buddhism. There's nothing like home. Where are you running to? We're the most ancient 
We're the classical, most ancient mysticism and religion in the world. We're 4,000 years old. You know, the oldest, the most ancient mystical mysticism and religion in the world, other than Judaism, is Hinduism, which is 3,200 years old. So, I mean, and the truth is, everything they have, they got from Abraham. The, the, Medrash, the Zohar says, it says Abraham remarried after Sarah died. He had children. He sent them to the east and he gave them gifts. He says, what are these gifts? He taught them mystical insight, insights. All these mystical insights of Hinduism, Buddhism, and all of that were the gifts that Abraham gave. As a matter of fact, Brahmin, they say it comes from Abraham. There's a whole book where they compare all the words in Sanskrit. A lot of the words have Hebrew origins. We just take credit for everything. It doesn't matter. But so it, it's due to no fault of their own. Bright, brilliant, and you know, the brilliance didn't go anywhere, it's there. But with completely ignorant. You know, the Torah was presented as a kindergarten childish thing. The holidays were, you know, it was all about Lakshman Kogel and Latkes and I mean, you know, there's no meaning, there's no depth, there's no so due to no fault of her own, when you have this Jewishness inside of you, and you have no way of expressing it, it's like having a nuclear energy inside of you. So either you can light up New York City with it, or you're going to destroy New York City with it. But you can't ignore it. You can't run away from it. I mean, th- think about it. It's, it's even, even in the Jews' degradation, it's even in the sad, you know, if it wasn't sad, it would be, it would be laughable, because you see how Jewish they are. The whole world is looking out for number one. That's normal. Every human being looks out for himself. The Jew is the only one in the world, even in the twisted, self-hating logic, which is, I mean, they're so open-minded, their brains fell out. But even the self-twisted, radical, starry-eyed thinking, you know, magical thinking, you know, we have to do what's right for the Palestinians. So therefore, I'm going to risk my wife, my child's life. A thousand Jews died, 10,000 Jews wounded. I'm going to risk and danger because we have to do what's right. I mean, even in that distorted thinking, you see how Jewish they are. Who even thinks like that? Everyone cares about themselves. That's normal. Business, you look out for yourself. You look out for your family. You look, you know, looking out for number one. That's normal. That's rational. That's normal. Only a Jew will but have to do what's right. I'm saying, so you see, even in their twistedness, even in their distorted thinking, the self-hating, and the, you know, why do I say self-hating? Because charity begins at home. The measure of a person is not how he treats a, tr- a stranger. The measure of a person is how they treat their family, their wife, their children. And a person who's a loving husband, a loving wife, and a person who treats his children very well and treats his siblings and his parents respectfully will be a great neighbor and a great citizen. So all this talk of tikkun olam, we're here to fix the world. But I'm not going to miss any opportunity to bash my Jewish brothers and sisters. Humiliate Israel, humiliate the Jews, humiliate, denigrate. This is not tikkun olam. This is, this is, this is dysfunctional. This is illness. This is coming from a bitter, angry hostile place this is illness you can't bring tikkun olam if you're not at peace with yourself you're not at peace about your own Jewishness so I'm saying yes it is a very twisted it's coming from a very twisted place but even in that twistedness you see that it's so Jewish the, the whole idea of self-hating is so Jewish 
You can't run away from it. It's who you are. You know, I'll never forget, you know, my parents live in Philadelphia. On the holiday on Sukkot, we, we went to visit, we go to visit the Jewish patients, you know, in the hospitals. So we're stuck in the hospital, they have to be on the holiday, a cheerful holiday, Sukkot, the most joyful holiday, and they're stuck in the hospital, very lonely. And we would go visit and wish them a good yantif and ask them if they want to shake the lulav and the esra, you know. And they were so happy to see us, you know. So we would come to St. Nazareth Hospital. They couldn't do enough for us. They would give us the red carpet treatment. Rabbis, what could we do for you? They would give us a list of all the Jewish patients. <laughs> then we went to Mount Sinai Hospital in Philadelphia, downtown Philly. They slammed the door in our face. <laughs> well, if we let you in, then we have to let in the Seventh-day Adventists. Are you kidding? This is a Jewish hospital, <laughs> Mount Sinai. Funded by Jews, by Jews, for Jews, and the whole place is Jewish. It's a holiday, the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. We just want to say, wish them a God forbid they should let us in. I, it's so twisted. It's so distorted. The self-hating is so distorted. But you know, it's due to no fault of their own, because they grew up without any Jewish Jewishness. The Jewishness that was presented to them was almost a caricature. It was like a joke. It's not anything serious. Nothing that touched them deeply, that was soulful, that was genuine, authentic, inspiring, uplifting. So, Teshuvah is really coming back to a place, coming home. Because a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And you know who sees it? The non-Jew sees it. Because the non-Jew is objective. They, they see through the facade. You could be more English than the English. Just like the German, the German, German Jews were more German than the German. The non-Jew looked at a Jew. You know the famous scene in Woody Allen, uh, uh, which, which of his, um, Annie Hall, I think? Annie Hall, yeah. he's, he's about to intermarry, and he's going to see his future in-laws. And they're looking at him, and they see a Hasidic with a beer. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. It's true. To them, it makes no difference. Every Jew is a Hasidic Jew. Every Jew, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You can... Pretend from today till tomorrow. The only one, the only one you're kidding is yourself. <laughs> but the non-Jew, you're not kidding. A Jew will always remain a Jew. So when a Jew comes home, you're really coming home to a place you never really left. That's the deeper meaning of teshuva. Teshuva means to return, not repentance. You don't have to be reborn again, become some religious saint, some otherworldly monk, a nun. No, it's teshuva. It's just reconnecting, bringing it out to the to the consciousness, bringing it out to the surface, and then. Your Jewishness becomes a joyful and vibrant part of your daily life, something you want to express every day. An artist has to paint every day, wants to paint every day. A musician wants to play music every day. If you have a talent, you want to express it each and every day. A day goes by. As Leonard Bernstein once said, he says, a day go by a, a day that goes by and I don't practice, I can tell the difference. He says, if two days go by and I don't practice, the critics can tell the difference. Yeah. He says, if three days go by and I don't practice, the audience can tell the difference. Now, a person has a talent, you want to write every day. It's not you have to, you want to. A day goes by and you don't express yourself. What's inside, inside of you feels hollow and empty and shallow. The same is with our Jewishness. Once our Jewishness becomes a joyful, vibrant part of our daily lives, 
then it's something you, you eagerly look forward to. I want to do something Jewish every day. I want to express all that inner richness, all that nuclear energy that I have inside of me that's bubbling, it's so alive, it's so vibrant, it's so deep and profound, it's my core, my essence. I want to express it each and every day. Every day I want to do something Jewish, whether it's saying the Shema or giving tzedakah. You know, our ancestors had in their, I mean, some, some of us remember, in their kitchens, grandparents, in their kitchens, they would nail a pushka, a charity box. And every time before they sat down for breakfast, for lunch, or supper, they would put a penny into the charity box. I mean, what a concept. Before you're taking care of your own needs, remember there's, there's needy, there's someone who's less fortunate than you. If all you can do is a penny, that's fine. Give a penny. Just thinking, it's not just about me, think about another person. And it was nailed in the wall. It was nailed into their soul. It was part of their life. You know, so this is something joyful. Every single day you want to express your Jewishness by doing a good deed, by doing an act of kindness, by doing something Jewish, doing something godly, something good. So then it becomes a joyful part of your life, something you look forward to. It becomes woven into the fabric of your being. So this is the idea of Teshuvah. So he says here, he's explaining that the idea of Teshuvah, which is such a powerful concept that even if we mess up and even which inevitably we will, we're human, and sometimes our responsibilities could feel overwhelming, and, you know, being human, we're not perfect. Thank God, makes us human, and we, we fail. You know, they say before every breakthrough, there has to be a breakdown. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's a failure, that we stumble, and we feel, we feel bad, we regret it. Especially if you're Jewish. That's why Jews feel guilty all the time. They, uh, you know why they send home the Yiddish mama? They send her home from jury duty. Because she insisted that she was guilty. <laughs> but it's okay. So we feel we do something wrong, we don't get to enjoy it. The moment we do something wrong, we already feel there's a stab of regret. It's part of life. So we have the opportunity. Hashem gives us the opportunity to always come home. To stand back. We can stand up again. We can return. We can reconnect. And the act of returning really is a very simple act. It's turning around. Making that change. From now on, I'm changing directions. Till now, I was behaving this way, and now I'm going to change my behavior. That is the essence of Teshuvah. Everything else that comes along with it, the regret... The asking forgiveness, the obtaining forgiveness, cleaning up the mess. Because if you do teshuva, let's say a person steals, it's not enough to say that I'm going to change and from now on I'm not going to steal. You have to, you have to fix what you've done. You have to clean the mess. You have to return the money. Or you can, if a person hurts another person, it's not enough to say from now on I'm turning a leaf, a new leaf. I'm changing I'm not going to behave this way. From now on, it's not enough. You have to ask forgiveness and you have to obtain forgiveness. So all of these details, these are details. These are aspects of teshuvah. When you do teshuvah, it's not enough just to change from now on. A part of teshuvah is also cleaning up the mess. But the essence of teshuvah is the change. The heart of teshuvah, the heart and soul of teshuvah is the change of direction. The turning around from east to west. Turning and returning and reconnecting 
making that shift inside. That from now on, I'm going to change. I'm, changing. I'm a new person. I'm a different person. I'm changing my behavior. That is the essence of Teshuvah. And, and uh, we left off last week, page 1010, and he spells out. He says that he makes a decision that I'm not going to rebel any longer because when, a, when a, a Jew realizes that we have a relationship with Hashem, we have a relationship with God, and when we sin, it's basically, besides the details, the specifics, but more importantly, it's the idea that we're, we're rebelling against this whole relationship. Not only don't we cherish, appreciate this relationship, and thank God for this relationship, but we, we rebel against that whole idea, that whole relationship. So it's like, it's like a soldier who deserts. So we, we, we run away. And so the idea of teshuva is not enough. It's not enough just to have a change of heart. From now on, I didn't do this obligation. From now on, I take upon myself, I will fulfill this obligation. It's much deeper than that. Because it's not just the detail, the specific. It's that general idea that I've disconnected myself. It's that general idea that I don't cherish what I have. And therefore, in order to do teshuva, to change, a change of heart is... Primarily, that from now on, I appreciate what I have. I appreciate this relationship, and I take it upon myself that I will fulfill the Torah. And I will fulfill my obligations. And I look at it as a privilege and an honor to fulfill the obligation. As a privilege and an honor to be a loyal and faithful uh, soldier, citizen, connected with Hashem. Th- this is an honor. And therefore, all of the mitzvot obligate This is not new age. It's not, well, if I feel like it, I'm going to do it. If I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. You know, Judaism is like a marriage. Marriage is not, it's not just touchy-feely. Well, if I feel like it, then I'll treat you as if I'm married to you. But if I don't feel like it, I wake up on the left side, it's all over. It doesn't work that way. You have to be nice to your spouse whether you feel like it or not. Whether you wake up one morning, uh, you wake up in a lousy mood. And even, even on a day that you wonder sometimes to yourself, why did I ever marry this person? Those days happen once in a while. But you still have obligations. It's not a question of, it's not a question, it's not arbitrary. It's not, well, your life can't be dictated only by your moods and your feelings at the moment. There are objective truth, there are objective realities. When you're married, it's two half-souls reuniting. When you stand under the chuppah together, when two Jews stand under the chuppah together, it's two half-souls. It's like a transplant in a heart and a heart. It's two half-souls that become one. It's not just physically. They physically come together. It's a soul connection. They spiritually come together. It's emerging. It's almost an act of creation. When you're sitting at the chuppah, it's like having a front-row seat at creation because you're seeing the creation of a new reality, a new entity, two half-souls becoming one, fusing, merging of souls. And that becomes an objective reality. That's a, that there's a truth, a hardcore bedrock truth to it. And therefore, you're obligated to treat, to treat each other well, even if you're not in the mood. You have no license to go ahead and to act differently. Well, I don't feel like it, so... still married. You have to treat each other respectfully. 
and pretend. It's okay to pretend. You know, some, it's amazing. We live in such a false world. Everything in this world is so false and pretense. This is the one area everyone becomes genuine. <laughs> I feel like a bum. I'm going to act like a genuine bum. You know, fake it. Don't act like a bum, even if you don't feel like it. It's okay to fake it. Pretend to be nice, even if you don't, if you don't feel like being nice. It's not, not, not a bad thing. You know, this is the one area you can fake it. You don't have to you pretend. You don't have to be so genuine. All of a sudden, you become such a genuine person. <laughs> it's okay. So the same is with our relationship with God. It's a marriage. It's not, oh, well, today I'm in the mood, so today I'm going to do something Jewish. Oh, tomorrow I'm not in the mood. Okay, it's over. It, it, that's, that's so flimsy. That's so, that's so unsubstantial. That's so insincere. That's so, there's nothing to it. If it's real, it's real. If it's real, it's 100% real. 100%. If it's not real, it's 100% not real. So, when a Jew does teshuva, you have to take it upon yourself to enter into this relationship. And if I enter into this relationship, then I enter, I commit myself, not only to this specific area which I was vulnerable or which I messed up, but in general, I reaffirm my whole commitment I take upon myself all 613 mitzvahs, both the positive as well as the prohibitions, the do's and the don'ts, because I cherish this relationship. And therefore, if I cherish this relationship and I enter into this relationship, I enter it 100%, not 99.9%. It's real or it's not real. You can't be halfway pregnant. You are or you aren't. You're here or you're there. Are you a Jew? Are you connected? Say, I'm a Jew. I'm 100%. And that's what he explains now. You want to read the second paragraph on page 1010? This means? This means that he must resolve in perfect sincerity never again to revert to folly, to rebel against Hashem's rule. He will never again violate the king's command. God forbid neither a positive command nor a prohibition. First he says a positive and then a prohibition because... In the case of a positive, you don't, the rebellion is not so pronounced. Because in the case of a positive, I'm not doing what I should be doing. In the case of a prohibition, when you violate a prohibition, you're actively rebelling. You're actively, God told you, don't steal. And you go ahead and go ahead and you do it. You're actively rebelling. So it's much more pronounced. The rebellion is much more pronounced. So what he's saying here... And this is, a, this is a novel interpretation, but it's, a, it's, it's that when you do teshuva, it's not enough just to do teshuva for that specific act, for whatever you've done wrong. But it has to be a general teshuva, that I return back to Hashem, I return, I once again enter this relationship, I take this relationship seriously, it's, binding, it's a binding relationship, it's, it's real, there are obligations, there are commitments. And I'm telling Hashem, you can count them. What Teshuva is, when a Jew turns to Hashem and says, on me you could rely. I am, I am here. I am yours. There's a relationship. I'm committing myself. And so it's not just committing to this specific act. It's basically committing myself to the whole, the whole package. To live a Jewish life, to think like a Jew, to speak like a Jew, and to act like a Jew, 24-7. Not just in special moments, 
or on holidays or special occasions, the day I get married or the first time I'm standing at the Western Wall. But it's real, it's consistent, it's 24-7. This is who I am. This is me. Therefore, I'm going to live a life that's consistent and true to myself. That's liberation. What, what, a, what a way to live. Imagine you can live a life that's consistent with who you really are. There's no split, there's no dichotomy, there's no split personality. You're inside like outside, outside like inside. It's like the law of resonance in physics, you know, the law of resonance. Everything, everything in the world vibrates. At the atomic level, everything vibrates. It appears to be solid and rigid, but internally everything vibrates. If the outside vibration matches the inside vibrations, it collapses. That's why when they build bridges, they have to take this law into account, make sure that the wind will not cause the bridge to collapse. Actually, they build a bridge in Tacoma, Washington, and the engineer fell asleep in class uh, when they were studying this particular law. So he forgot about it, and actually the bridge collapsed. <laughs> the famous, famous... When soldiers march across a bridge, they don't mark, march in lockstep because their vibrations could cause the bridge to collapse. There's a scientist in Israel who's working on a cancer cure based on this concept by discovering the unique vibrations of the tumor and then matching it, so then causing only the tumor to collapse without affecting a single healthy cell around it. A Yiddish So that's the law of resonance. Well, that's, that's what Torah and Mitzvah is. Torah and Mitzvah... When a Jew leads a Jewish life, when you act like a Jew and speak like a Jew and think like a Jew 24-7, you, you live a life that resonates. It resonates from within. You're doing something external. But when you light a Shabbat candle, something lights up inside of you, in the inner recesses of your soul, in your deepest parts of your soul. It, it resonates. It's a connection. It's a link. It's not just something external. It's not rituals. Mitzvot are not rituals. It's genuine. Something real happens. You're sitting at the Seder night. We don't make the Passover Seder on weekends to make it convenient. It's the night that it happened, whatever, because there's a godly energy, and you can feel it. You're sitting at the Seder, we're all dressed up nicely, and we're eating beautiful food, but it's real delicious food, but it's really just a, a reflection, an external reflection of what's going on deep down inside our soul. So this is the law of resonance. So when a Jew leads a life of a Jewish life, and that's why Jews have survived for 3,800 years, our ancestors, every Jew that's alive today, our ancestors, without any interruption, lived through thick and thin, survived Holocaust and Hitlers and pogroms and Chalmanitskis and expulsions and, and the order de fez and, and uh, exiles. And yet nothing could deter them from leading a Jewish life. Because it's not just external, superficial rituals. Rituals wouldn't have survived 3,800 years. It's, it's life. It resonates. It's real. When a Jew leads a Jewish life, it resonates. So when you do teshuva, you basically have a change of heart. And you turn to Hashem and said, whatever happened in the past, I'm turning a new leaf. From now on, I'm reconnecting. From now on, I take upon myself. I cherish this relationship. I value this relationship. And I'm making a commitment. And you can rely on me. I'm making a commitment that I will live a Jewish life. 24-7. Think like a Jew. Speak like a Jew. Act like a Jew. All 613 years. That's my commitment. That's Teshuvah. And that's the heart of Teshuvah. The other aspects of Teshuvah, those are details. You have to to mop up. You have to clean up your mess. You have to ask forgiveness. You have to fix fix, uh, whatever you've done wrong. But that's, that's a detail. The heart of Teshuvah, the moment you decide to change, 
it's considered as if you've done tshuva. That is the heart of tshuva. You've, you've done tshuva. You're a new person. You've changed. And your tshuva is accepted. Okay. You want to continue? This is the basic... Never. This is the basic meaning of the terms teshuva, repentance, to return to God with all one's heart and soul, to serve Him and to observe all His commandments. It's interesting. The word mitzvah is com- literally means commandment. But the root word of the word mitzvah in Hebrew comes from the word sevet, connection. Because when you do a mitzvah, it's not just a commandment, but the, the root, the heart and soul of a mitzvah is a connection. When you do a mitzvah, you're connecting. It's a divine connection. You're doing something genuine. You're experiencing something. You're not just going through the motions. Something very real happens when you do a mitzvah. So when you do teshuvah, you take upon yourself. You're making a divine connection, so you take upon yourself. Once you make that divine connection, you take upon yourself all of the 613 mitzvah that I want to live a godly life. I want to live a Jewish life. It's an opportunity to connect. Every moment becomes an opportunity. You know, instead of living, today the whole culture we're living, it's all about living for the moment. So disp- everything is disposable, including spouses. Everything today is disposable. Live for the moment. That's what life has been reduced to. Living for the moment. Just have fun for the moment. There is no future, there is no past, there is no connection, there is no destiny, there is no history. All that matters is have fun for the moment. And this has become enshrined and, and sacred. This has become the great ideal in life reducing everything to absolute meaninglessness and just live for the moment. In Judaism, it's the exact opposite. The whole theme of Judaism is live in the moment. Every moment becomes an eternal moment. Every moment becomes an opportunity to connect with something eternal. Because every moment is connected to all previous moments and every moment is connected to all future moments. But that's our choice. God gives us a choice. I've given you life, and I've given you the opposite. I've given you good, and I've given you evil. And you choose. You want to live for the moment, where life is all about a distraction. You need a constant distraction, a constant vacation, 24-7, constant running away from reality. You know, 500 channels with nothing to watch. Just a constant vacation from reality, constant distraction. Or every moment you take a cup of water, something so simple, you have a natural need to drink and suddenly you stop for a moment and this simple act becomes an opportunity to create an eternal moment when the Jew before he takes a cup of water he makes a blessing you're aware what's about to happen the divine energy that's energizing me and you realize that everything is being created each and every moment as as the modern physicist reveals, shows that every moment the world is really energy. It's energy transforming itself into matter each and every second, even though we don't see that. All we see is the rigid matter, the external end result, the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We don't see the the inner dynamic energy, how the world is pulsating with the energy and life. That we don't see. But that's the energy that's really energizing us when we drink this cup of water. So you stop for a moment and you make a blessing and you thank Hashem for the privilege and the opportunity to, to drink and to be alive and to be healthy and the miracle of creation suddenly this simple act becomes an eternal moment you've created you've connected it to all previous moments and to all future moments so 
But this is the opportunity that we have. A mitzvah is an opportunity. Hashem gave us 613 opportunities. These are not obligations, restrictions, constrictions. These are 613 opportunities to live each moment, to make each moment an eternal moment. It's not just about you know, the moment, living for the moment. It's living in the moment, being present, being real, being connected. And that's why it's amazing. You know, from all the people of the world, the Jews are the most connected and the most down-to-earth. Look, we're still here. We're all the mighty Greeks and the mighty Romans. Footnotes in history. We're the Bill Gates of 100 years ago. Who cares and who remembers? And the Jew never left the front pages of history. The eternal people. We've been the most persecuted, and yet we celebrate life. All other religions talk about life, the afterlife, you know. And the whole world is a maya, an illusion, and Jews celebrate life. This is holy. Life is holy. Living every, making every moment into an eternal moment. Being present. Celebrating reality. Celebrating life. Celebrating the miracle of existence, the miracle of creation. And making life itself and making every moment into something more. And that's why it, this is all expressed in marriage. The Jewish idea of marriage. Which is really the, the essence of Judaism because the whole Judaism is really about the marriage of the Jew and God. The reason why God is referred to in the Torah as He is not because the Torah was written by men, but because it's a marriage. God is the groom, and the Jewish people are His bride. And just like in marriage, marriage, you're creating something eternal. And every time husband and wife are together, that they're affirming and strengthening something eternal, something that will outlive them, not last, which the children will carry on till the end of time. So it's not about living in the moment. Just have fun, live in the moment. It's all about the momentary pleasure. Divorced from anything. Divorced from past. Divorced from even the opportunity, the possibility of a future, God forbid. But no, every moment becomes an eternal moment. And this is the whole model of Judaism. This is the whole essence, the soul of Judaism. It's an opportunity. A mitzvah is an opportunity. It's a connection. It's a link. It's something divine. So when you do teshuva, you've turned your life around. Instead of looking at Judaism as something constricting and something imposed upon, something you can't run away fast enough, you turn around and you make that turn from east to west and you say, hey, this isn't a privilege, it's an opportunity. It's a, it's a, it's a, you cherish it, you love it. You turn around, you say to Hashem, I'm home and I want to reconnect. And the moment you, you make that split-second decision, the moment you turn around inside, you're home. That's all it takes. Everything else, the asking the forgiveness and cleaning up your mess, which takes time. If you stole money, you have to return the money. If you hurt someone's feelings, you have to ask his forgiveness and obtain his forgiveness. But those are all details. The heart and soul of Teshuvah is the change, the inner change. Making that decision, the resolution that from now on going forward, I'm going to change. Because I welcome it. I look forward to it. I look, I, I want to live this life. It's beautiful. I love my Jewishness. I cherish my Jewishness. I want to live a Jewish life. So Hashem, I'm changing. I'm reconnecting. Revealing that connection that was always there. That's the heart and soul of the Shuf. And he brings a proof to this. For so does Scripture state, let the wicked abandon his path and the sinful his thoughts and return to God. The verse says, this is taken from Isaiah, that... 
he uses the word return, teshuva. We don't have any other words, so we're just saying the word repentance, but like we explained earlier, it has nothing to do with repentance. But, so what is the process of Vyashuv? How do you return? By abandoning your path. That's all he mentions. He doesn't mention anything else. He doesn't mention asking forgiveness. He doesn't mention cleaning up your mess. The idea of abandoning your path. Abandoning your, your wicked way and returning. That's the essence of Teshuvah. Once you've done that, you've reconnected. I assume, before you continue, here it's talking, he talks about thoughts, though. Sometimes people think negative things and they don't act on them, but this is talking about thoughts, which is much, much higher. A person has to change not only your behavior, but uh, thought, thought is very delicate. You know, the damage that you can do with negative thoughts sometimes is far greater than the, than the damage you do through behavior. Because thought is so much more delicate than action. It's so much more intimate. And so you can't stop thinking. You can stop speaking. Some people could. But you can't stop thinking. Because thought is so connected to your soul. Just like your soul never stops from the moment you're born. So thought, you can't, even when you're dreaming, you're thinking. You know, even when you're sleeping, you're thinking. So thought is much more intimate. So if your thoughts are unhealthy and unwholesome, you can do tremendous damage. If you have a, if you have a, 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 a negative assumption, if your whole assumption, your whole way of looking at things is distorted, it's so much more difficult to undo a negative thought than it is to undo a negative action. You know, a negative attitude. A person has a distorted attitude, a distorted picture. It's so much harder to, to, to change that. And the damage that that can do also is, almost, is, is so much more far-reaching. Just like when you think, you can think for a minute, and it takes you five minutes to express in words. You can think for five minutes, it takes you half an hour to express. So thought is so much more far-reaching. So if you have a negative attitude or a negative way of looking at things the damage could also be so much more far-reaching. So when you do teshuva, it's not only you have to abandon your negative ways, your behavior, but you also have to abandon if you have a wrong way of thinking, you have a very twisted way of thinking, or negative attitudes. A person who's arrogant, a person that's filled with jealousy, with envy, you know, it can destroy you. So a person, you, you don't only have to change your behavior, you also have to change your you know, an attitude adjustment. A person who can't get along with other people is always negative, always sees a negative in other people, is filled with jealousy, is jealous of another person's success. Can't fagin, as they say in Yiddish, another person. Um, you know, the, these are very far-reaching things, and the person has to ch- change that as well. It's, it's not just your actions you have to change. So he mentions both. But that's why first he quotes the verse of Isaiah, even though Isaiah is a prophet, and then he brings a quote from the, from the Torah, from the five books of Moses. Because the book in, in, in Isaiah is much clearer. The proof is clearer. It says clearly that what is the process of teshuva? Abandoning your ways. Abandoning your paths. Then he brings a quote from the Torah, which is not as clear. Okay, you want to continue in the Torah portion? In the Torah portion of Yitzamim, it is likewise written, you shall return unto the Lord your God and hearken to his voice with all your heart. So too, return, O Israel, unto the Lord your God, and elsewhere. Bring us back, O Lord, unto you. This differs from the popular conception 
that repentance is synonymous with fasting on account of one's sin. It's not spelled out as clearly as in Isaiah where it says that the wicked person abandons his path. That's really the crux of the shuva. Abandoning your path and changing, changing your behavior. Because when he says return to Hashem, you can still argue that maybe return means asking forgiveness, regretting your past, feeling guilty about your past. It's not, it's not so clear cut that the crux of the shuva is not so much the past, but the future. But in Isaiah he says abandoning your path. He's talking about the future. That going forward, I'm abandoning my wicked path, and going forward, I'm going to change my whole behavior, I'm going to change my whole attitude. So that's why he quotes that first. But now that we know from Isaiah, now we, can, uh, we understand when the verse says, in the five books of Moses, return to Hashem, what is the process of return? The process of return is, as he continues, listen to his voice. Again, going forward. That is the essence of Teshuvah. As he says, that the Jewish people will return to you, and we ask also, please bring us back to you. Okay, and then he continues, what he's saying now is that there are many aspects to, 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 uh, to Teshuvah. The key of Teshuvah is changing, going forward. But then there are other aspects of Teshuvah, asking forgiveness, and they're all aspects of Teshuvah, obtaining forgiveness, wiping away our sin, wiping away um, the scars, the negative energy that we created. But there's one thing that's really not part of Teshuvah, and that is fasting. 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 To fast. He says, to fast has nothing to do with Teshuvah. People make a mistake. People think that penance, repentance means you have to fast. You have to go on a fasting diet. He says, and that has nothing to do with Teshuvah. That's completely incidental to the whole idea of Teshuvah. And he's going to explain what role fasting plays. But there's no obligation. There's no obligation. In the laws of Teshuvah, Maimonides does not say that there's an obligation to fast. That if you feel, if you did something wrong and you feel bad about it, that you have to fast. He says, no. There's no obligation on the person to fast. That has nothing to do with the process of the shuvah. Is it what you do on Yom Kippur? I mean, you do shuvah and you fast. So why is it wrong? There is a mitzvah to fast. And it says the fast day itself accomplishes an atonement. But then there's a mitzvah of the shuvah. And when, is the, when does the fast day of Yom Kippur, when is it effective? It's effective when a person does Teshuvah. But even when a person does Teshuvah, it's the fast day itself that achieves the atonement. Because the fast day of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is a day when the essential relationship between a Jew and Hashem is revealed. We celebrate the relationship, the essential relationship between a Jew and Hashem the unconditional love between a Jew and Hashem. And that emerges on Yom Kippur. And that's why when that unconditional love comes to the surface, all the negative energy and all the sins and all the scars are just washed away. It's cleansed. It's clean. So, it, so Yom Kippur is a kapara. It's an atonement. 
And there's also an obligation on Yom Kippur to do Teshuvah, because when does the, the atonement of Yom Kippur kick in? When a person does Teshuvah. When a person is in the mood of Teshuvah. When a person is fasting, when you're in the mood of Teshuvah. So you have to do Teshuvah in order for the atonement of Yom Kippur itself to kick in. But the fast day of Yom Kippur itself, that achieves an atonement. It, it cleanses away the negative energy. But that's not, that's not the, the, the Teshuvah. The Teshuvah, the mitzvah of Teshuvah is not the fasting. The mitzvah of Teshuvah is you have to change. If you fast and you don't do Teshuvah, the fasting doesn't help you. The fasting of Yom Kippur achieves an atonement only for those who, who do Teshuvah. But the, there's no obligation. To do Teshuvah, there's no obligation to fast. In general, the mitzvah of Teshuvah is all year round. Not just on Yom Kippur. When you sin, you have a mitzvah to do Teshuvah. So the mitzvah of Teshuvah, there's no mitzvah to fast. There's no requirement to fast. You can go through your whole life fasting only on Yom Kippur and whatever you have to fast. You don't have to fast to do Teshuvah. People think if I did something wrong to make up for it after fast. You don't have to fast. As a matter of fact, the Baal Shem Tov discourage fasting in our day and age because the generations are so weak and if you're going to fast you won't have the energy that you need to study Torah to do mitzvot you have to be healthy you have to be vibrant you have to be vigorous to accomplish everything that we need to accomplish you have to be alive and robust and healthy and cheerful and you're going to walk around fasting and sackcloth and that's not the way it's through joy and through you know, being inspired and uplifted. So, Baal to frown on the whole thing of fasting. Here, the Altarev is explaining that there's no obligation to fast. Absolutely not. You can do 100% shuva without fasting. At all. Yom Kippur is a different story. Yom Kippur, like we learned earlier, is the atonement. By once fasting once a year, you achieve an atonement. Especially for those sins that shuva alone is not enough. You violated the prohibition. So then you need an atonement plus plus fast of Yom Kippur. And if you if you violate even a worse sin, it's a more severe sin, which has comes with a capital punishment, then it's the fast of Yom Kippur. It's Teshuvah, the fast of Yom Kippur, together with pain and suffering. And if you desecrated Hashem's name, even that's not enough. You need Teshuvah, Yom Kippur pain and suffering, and ultimately death itself to achieve a full atonement. So that's for the atonement. But for, the, for teshuvah, teshuvah itself, you don't need, it has nothing to do with fasting. And, and that's what he says, this is the popular conception. People make that mistake. People associate, if you're repenting, if you're doing teshuvah, you have to fast. He says, no, no you don't need it. Not necessary. No connection. This differs in the popular conception of repentance synonymous with fasting. The council wants it. Even in the case of sins punishable by excision or execution, where an atonement is made complete by suffering, as previously quoted from the Barasha in Yoma, this means that it is God who brings suffering upon the sinner in order to complete his atonement. See, even we learned earlier that the atonement for someone who violates a prohibition that's a capital crime 
So the atonement is through pain and suffering. So you would think, maybe pain and suffering means you should fast. Afflict pain and suffering on yourself. If I suffer, if I'll fast, then I will achieve atonement. It will cleanse away my sins. He says, no. The meaning is that when you do Teshuvah, and you have Yom Kippur, then Hashem will bring in your pain and suffering. It's only when Hashem brings in your pain and suffering. That cleanses away your sin. But if you bring pain and suffering upon yourself, you think to yourself, let, let me roll in the snow, let me roll amongst the, uh, the uh, you know, people would roll in the sand with the, with the, with the ants crawling all over me. Let me fast. Let me afflict pain and suffering on myself. Let me suffer for all the sins that I've done. If I'm serious about repenting, then all the pleasure that I had, I have to suffer. Make up for it. For all the pleasure that I have, let me self-affliction. Let me beat myself. Let me torture myself. Let me bring suffering on myself. It's a very Christian concept. It's not a Jewish concept. It's not a Jewish concept. It's not through pain and suffering. Hashem, when Hashem sees that you're sincere, Hashem sees that you're genuinely changing, and you've done Teshuvah, and you had Yom Kippur, then Hashem will bring pain and suffering to cleanse away your sin. But Hashem brings it upon us. Now we bring it upon us. So not only is it not part of the, the mitzvah of Teshuvah, it's not even part of the atonement. The atonement is not achieved, even though it says atonement, you need pain and suffering. Not your pain and suffering, not self-inflicted pain and suffering. Hashem will bring pain. Hashem will cleanse you from your sin. Hashem will wipe, wipe away your sin. And like he brings the verse. It says, the, the, the Talmud uses the verse, God says, I, with a rod, I will remember their sin. Okay. As the verse clearly specifies, with the rod shall I remember their sin. That is to say, when God finds his repentance acceptable, as he returns to him with all his heart and soul, out of love, then following the initiative undertaken from below, and as water reflects the countenance, there is an awakening above, arousing God's love and kindness to scour his sin and entirely cleanse him of it through affliction in this world. In the spirit of the verse, for he whom the Lord loves, he chastises. This is something quite different from any fast or affliction that an individual undertakes himself. So like an apparent, a parent sees that the child you know, is rolling in the mud and is crusted with dirt and is so filthy and also sometimes endangered himself. He got a cut and all this dirt, he can hurt himself. So the, the loving parent takes the child, gives him a bath, a hot bath, and scrapes off all the dirt. And sometimes it's so encrusted, it's painful. The child is yelling. How cruel could you be? How could my father and my mother be so cruel? What are they doing to me? They're torturing me. But is it an act of cruelty? No, it's the ultimate act of kindness. Out of his love. Out of the, if it's a, it would be a stranger, what do I care? 
not a stranger. It's my child, my love, unconditionally. And if my child is in such a state, the parent, the father, out of his love, takes and scrapes away the dirt and washes the child personally to clean off the child. And now he looks like a man, it's clean, healthy. So Hashem, when Hashem sees that we're sincere, when Hashem sees that we're trying to come home, and we're trying to change, and we're trying to clean up our mess, to atone, to clean away, and wipe away that scar, that negative energy that we've created, and Hashem will personally, out of His love for us, why scrape away the dirt, the schmutz, and clean us. So it's an act of love from Hashem, but Hashem does it. So it's not pain and suffering that we do. That doesn't do the trick. You can roll and slow snow from today till tomorrow. Roll and anthill from today till tomorrow. You can fast from today till tomorrow. It's only the pain and suffering that Hashem brings. And Hashem brings pain and suffering out of His love for us to clean us, to cleanse us. That's what achieves an atonement. But, uh, but there is that popular idea people have. They associate teshuva with fasting. And really has nothing, nothing to do with fasting. Teshuva is a very powerful subject. It's, uh, it's the call of the hour. This our generation. All about teshuva. In a way, the soul came into this world in order to do teshuva. But it's like, which water is the richest water, the richest in mineral? Is it, well, uh, is it well water or is it rain water? Rain water comes straight from heaven? Rain or is it well water? Spring water? Spring, spring water. Spring water, spring water is, is much richer than rain water. Why? Rain water comes straight from heaven. Spring water comes, comes from the earth, from the dirt. But that's exactly the reason. The water has come from the dirt. It's cleansed by the dirt. It's enriched by it. And when you get water, it's so refreshing, it's so rich. Mayim chayim. Certain, certain areas you could only use spring water in halacha. Certain for the red heifer, for a zav, for, for a man who has gonorrhea, has to purify himself. Certain things you need mayim chayim. You can't just take rainwater. Mikvah, you can use rainwater. But for certain things you need mayim chayim, which is spring water. Spring water is much deeper. That's the story of our soul. This soul, before we were born, we're in heaven. Heaven is like rainwater, pure, blissful, divine, clear. And then the soul is plunged into this world. And we have to fight through the dirt. But when the water, when the soul pushes, works through the dirt and pushes through the dirt, the soul walks away, becomes well water, spring, mayim chayim, so much richer, so much enriched. That's teshuva. Who is greater, the tzaddik or the baltruva? It's baltruva. Because the tzaddik is pure. Tzaddik never came in contact with dirt. Tzaddik is like rainwater, heavenly. Everything about him is heavenly, pure. Never had any breakdown and never had any breakthrough. But the baltruva who had the breakdown, had to have, he achieved that breakthrough. He has that depth and that richness that the tzaddik doesn't have. So this is the, this is the, the shuk. The soul coming into this world just in order to achieve and then when the soul goes to heaven after living this life it's not the soul doesn't just go back to the same place it was before it came into this world because then what would be the point 
You don't destroy a house just to rebuild the same house. You, you, you destroy a house in order to build a much bigger and better house. So the, uh, the tzaddik, the baltruva, the, the soul comes into this world and it goes to a much higher place than it was before it came into this world. Because now it became well water, mayim chayim, much richer, much deeper, much more profound, because it went through the dirt and went through the earthiness. So that's teshuva. It's only by way of teshuva. And it's interesting, that's why the day of the bar mitzvah, the day of bas mitzvah, the bar mitzvah boy and the bas mitzvah girl, they say tachanun. They say tachanun. Tachanun is confession. You would think, you know, on a joyous occasion, the day of your wedding, you don't say tachanun. It's like a festive, festival. It's a holiday. The day of your bar mitzvah should be a tremendous holiday. That's when your soul enters your body, your godly soul. It's like a birth. On a bris, you don't say a tachnun. So why are we saying tachnun on the day of the bar mitzvah and the bas mitzvah? So the Rebbe explains because we're telling the bar mitzvah boy and the bar mitzvah girl that although you became, today you became obligated to do mitzvot, 613 mitzvot, and it could feel like an overwhelming obligation, especially knowing that since we're human and we're not perfect, and we're young and vulnerable, the young of all ages, we will make mistakes. We will fail. So it's, it's discouraging. On one hand, you're joyful. On the other hand, you could be, it could be overwhelming. So we tell the Bar Mitzvah boy, it's okay. It's okay. It's part of life. Yes, you will fail. It's inevitable. Nobody is perfect. But you always have a way, by saying tachnun, by confessing, you have a way of, of mending it, of fixing it. Hashem gave us the ability to do teshuva. It's also part of it. That's an essential part of a person's life. You can do teshuva. You can change. At any point, you can change. And you can reconnect. So, teshuva is an essential part of a Jew's life. Instead of feeling discouraged, because teshuva also has to be done with joy. He says it's not about fasting. People think that doing teshuva means you have to, you have, to have a drooping face, and you have to become depressed, you have to look haggard, sickly, torture yourself to death. That's not shuvah. A Jew has to be joyful. Shuvah also has to be joyful. The Balshemtiv, the Balshemtiv once met a Jew, and it was on Yom Kippur, and he was so joyful. Balshemtiv said, "What are you so joyful about?" It's Yom Kippur. We're confessing in our sins. And he was so joyful, he says, the Baal Shem Tov, listen, he says, imagine, he says, a king, and one of, his, one of his servants, his job is to clean, clean out the courtyard, get all the dirt out of the courtyard, the horses, you know, the royal horses <laughs> made a mess, and his job is to clean out the courtyard. He says, you don't think he would be doing it with joy? I'm cleaning the king's courtyard. 
So yes, I'm dealing with schmutz. But you don't look at it that way. I'm not dealing with schmutz. I'm cleaning the king's courtyard, the palace, the royal palace, the royal courtyard. Hashemta smiled. He says, yes, you're right. So even teshuva, especially teshuva, has to be done with joy. That's what he's saying. It's not about fasting. You think you have to become shriveled up and you have to fast and you have to torture yourself and you have to twist yourself into a pretzel and become... That's not teshuva. Teshuva should be joyful. Teshuva should be vibrant. Teshuva should be vigorous. Teshuva should be alive, dynamic, inspiring, uplifting. Yes, you're dealing with negativity. Of course. You're cleaning the royal palace, but you're cleaning the royal palace. You're dealing with royalty here. With the divine. You're connecting with Hashem. It's not about fasting. It's not about negativity. It's all positive. That's the general emphasis of Hasidus. It takes Hasidus to highlight and to emphasize. The essence of Teshuvah is to come back, to reconnect. The moment you reconnected, you did Teshuvah. As we learned the previous time. The proof in Allah. It's an instant. It's a moment. It's a split second. The moment you had a change of heart. The moment you turned around. Turned inward. Come back home. The place you never really left. That's the essence of the truth. And then you have to clean up. But you're cleaning up the royal palace. So don't be haggard and down and depressed. And that's not what it's about. That's what he says. Not like the... The people think. The popular conception. That being, doing Teshuvah means you have to get serious. And getting serious means you have to torture yourself and fast and be depressed and sad. And... You have to return. When Hashem sees you're sincere and wholehearted, Hashem will do His part. He gave us Yom Kippur. And then if we need, he'll clean us. Personal. He'll give us a bath. He'll scrape us. He'll compress our egos. Deflate our egos. And he'll heal us. Restore us to our health. To be continued. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golas, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Balshamtev. He tells the Balshamtev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore, the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Balshamtev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tan. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, 
published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself. Thank you.